Welcome to Fire Away Seriously Funny Conversations, the podcast where we catch up on things that make us laugh and things that make us human, especially today. We are Matt Bays and Leslie Robbins, and today we are going to talk to my good friend, Laura Parrott Perry, about her beautiful new memoir, Homeward. We are excited to have her here. I was thinking of that song that's like, I know you're not alone. I'm going to make this place, place your home. home. That's right. <laughs> that's all I can think of. Yes. Yay for Laura. Yay for Laura. We're going to be bringing her on very soon. And we're going to pick her brain and talk to her about her experience, how she got from there to here, uh, because there is so much wisdom in this person. It feels like a little bit of a departure from what we typically do. Mm -hmm. But I was thinking about this today, Leslie, about this podcast and what we wanted it to be. Our purpose initially was we wanted to give people a moment from the chaos of their lives, right? And to give people the opportunity to remember what joy is, what it feels like to be happy. So we didn't want it to be this super serious thing, but we say it right in the beginning, things that make us laugh and things that make us human. The things that make us human and that we have to struggle and wrestle with are the things that often propel us into joy. So this feels like a, a moment for us to slow down a little bit and offer something that could be particularly meaningful to uh, listeners. Look in a messy bun. Is she still? She's coming. Oh, I was like, <laughs> yay, Laura. Yay. Leslie, this is I exciting. Wanna, I just want to say I am on the water journey. It's all Leslie's fault. Now, when I carry this sucker around and people ask me about it, I tell them I'm on water journey. <laughs> Laura, well, before you got on, we just uh, learned that Leslie's hairdresser canceled her appointment last Thursday, and she is not happy about this. Look at it. Look. Leslie, there is a gray situation happening under here. I canceled my appointment, but I'm not here. I went to a tractor pull instead. Priorities. Of course you did. When Laura said that she was going to a tractor pull, I said, please tell me you have one thing on that is cut off or tied in a knot at the waist. It does feel like a missed opportunity in retrospect. I will say... Did I feel like a 14 at that tractor pull? I did. Like, <laughs> one to 10. Was I a 14? I was a 14. I was like, yep, I'm here for it. Let's stay forever. I could see that. Yeah. Like, who doesn't want to be the prettiest girl in the room? I feel like that at Lane Bryant. I wear the smallest size of Lane Bryant. So, like, I'm a size zero there. I'm just so little <laughs> and petite. You said I'm a size zero there. Hey, guys. Okay, I'm a skinny so bitch. You, oh, yes. That is what, Laura, we were looking for a title. We were thinking about calling this episode Homeward. Turns out we're going to call it Skinny Bit. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to get us started here a little bit. We have been very excited about this episode. Number one, we've never, outside of my daughter on the phone, we've not had a guest on here. And when we started Fire Away, it was like, we're going on the funny side. We're going to have fun. But we have that line in there about what makes us laugh and what makes us human. Because we feel like out of the humanity, the things and the lessons that we learn comes so all the riches of joy and peace and self-acceptance and 
new levels of life that mm-hmm. we didn't have before. And so an opportunity to have somebody of your caliber on here, and I say that, I already feel tears in my eyes, is such a blessing for people to take a moment and pause and think about their lives and realize that there's a resource to get them to a new level of life is amazing. So thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And I love the way you sort of move in and out of like complete superficial nonsense, which I love. And then all of a sudden I'm like, why am I crying? That's like my, I think that's your sweet spot is that you're able to sort of swim in those waters. Right. Cause I think that that's, that's life, right? It's like, ha 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 ha. And then you get your ass kicked. Mm -hmm. That's the truth of it. Nobody gets through this thing unscathed. I don't care how happy clappy you are at some point, life is going to kick your ass. Yeah, sure. It's coming for us. We've never had our asses kicked yet, no, have we, Leslie? Somehow I made it five decades and I'm just fine. Nothing has happened. Ain't nobody died. Ain't nobody been abused. Ain't nobody been an alcoholic. It's fine. Pleasantville. Yes. I think we'll start out. I know you as such a close friend. We met in the comments section of a blog post that you wrote about coming to terms with sexual abuse. And then I've said in, because I got to write the foreword for this book, Homeward, that we're going to be talking about. And in that foreword, I say 10,000 calls later, Laura would give the toast at my wedding. She isn't just a friend. She is a fellow traveler, confidant, source of great wisdom, a sister. She is as tested a person as I've ever known. When we are lost, it's so difficult to find our way, but I have this friend, and now you do too, who arranges words and tells stories so therapeutically, and my God, every single time I read them, I see a path forward, and I heal a little bit more. In this beautiful new memoir, Laura Parrott Perry is leading us homeward, which is the title of this book. And I spent a bunch of time reading on it again today. I've now read it four and a half times. It is so beautifully written. I just feel like it is an entirely new level of writing for you. And I already think you're the most fantastic writer. So can we just step into what was the process for you? How did this all begin? Yeah. So I had about, gosh, three years ago now, three years ago, Uh, next week, actually, Um, I had a relationship that I'd been in for almost seven years and very, to my way of seeing it at that time, and very abruptly, did not see it coming, came home from work, it's over. And I was like, what? (laughs) Um, And I had nowhere to go. I didn't have any place to live. I'd been helping to raise his two sons for the past seven years. I had my community in that area and I found myself just completely untethered. Both of my kids were on the West coast. I was in this space of like being yanked out of this life that I'd been building and not having a life to go into and really not understanding where my place was anymore. And I think what I realized early on is that what my reaction to that was, I was in a really deep, dark hole for a while. Um, 
and you've said since then you didn't even really realize how how deep and dark that hole right. was. It was it was I was in a bad place for a while, and I think what I began to realize as I started to come out of it is that it was about so much more than that one deeply devastating thing happening. It wasn't just about the loss of that home, and it wasn't just about the loss of that relationship. It was about my relationship with the idea of home and whether I'd ever really felt like I was home. And I began to realize that this feeling of like intense homesickness was not new. It -hmm. was something that I had really felt my whole life. And, And so I began to sort of reflect on that. And the process really started with, and I know you do this too, walking and notes in my phone where I'd be out walking the the streets of New Haven and I would have an idea or a thought or I would figure something out and I'd put it in notes on my phone. And all of a sudden those started accumulating and I wasn't ready to write for a while. Um, I was just shattered and heartbroken and Mm -hmm. um, so out of my mind with grief. But it was really just me writing my way through it. And then eventually, you know this as a writer, you start to see the connective tissue and you start to see what this has to do with that and how that calls back to this other thing. Yeah. And so I started piecing things together. And then eventually I was like, oh, this is not about what I thought it was going to be about. This is really about my relationship with home. And so that's really the genesis of the book. So I know that when I was coming out of this relationship, I was just completely broken. I was shattered. And I know that, you know, that's a a word that some people have a a reaction to now. There was a period of time where we were all broken. Everyone was broken. There were t-shirts, beautiful and broken and all that stuff. And then we rejected it because, you know, nobody's broken. I was broken. Um, And for me, the word broken has baked into the definition wholeness, right? So I don't mean I was born broken. I mean, I was whole. And then events broke me. And then the book is me putting myself back together again, piece by piece and figuring out what goes where and what do I keep and what do I discard? Because you can put something back together again, but it's going to be a different shape. It's not going to be the same thing. Right. So as as jarring as your brokenness occurred, Mm -hmm. because it was a step in one moment and just completely be leveled. Yes. Is when you sent me uh, a copy of chapter one, I opened it and read these words. This house is dead. I don't want to be with you anymore. And I felt in my chest. <laughs> as soon as I read it, I was like, you know, where you're like, eh, it's too much for me. I'm not doing this today. I'm not doing, but that's the thing about life is this is what it is. And that's where this book begins and it's so honest and it's so horrifying. It's just devastating. So yeah, broken. I get it. So tell us more about that moment. Sure. I mean, it was a regular day, you know, the, the, nothing, nothing out of the ordinary was happening. That doesn't mean that there weren't things going on. That doesn't mean that there weren't problems, but nothing out of the ordinary was going on. I was sitting on the couch on my laptop. He came in, sat down in a chair and said those words to me. And I didn't say a single word in response because it was one, like there was this tiny little piece of me that was like, not one word. You don't say one word in response to that. And I I got up and walked upstairs. I texted you, uh, packed a bag, went to bed and left the next day and never lived there again. Fire away. (laughs) (laughs) 
I don't know if we can add this, but right before my divorce, like kind of we, I sensed it was coming, but we kind of ignored it and mm-hmm. built our dream house. And it was like the thing you wanted had like this, the kitchen you I always dreamed of, the flooring, the carpet, the furniture. It was, I mean, everything you could ever dream of, but it was dead. And like when you, when I read that part, it was like, I can't make my dream house come to life. It is dead. It's, there's no soul here. Does that make sense? It absolutely makes sense. And it's interesting because I had, well, I write in the book about my parents digging a hole in the backyard of my childhood home for a pool as our family was spiraling and they were about to get divorced. And then three months before I found out what was going on in my marriage that I'd previously been unaware of, um, we had moved into my dream home. My absolute, like, I couldn't believe I lived there. Mm -hmm. And I walked around thinking like, I cannot believe this is my life. Mm -hmm. I can't believe it. And then three months later, I was saying, I cannot believe this is my life. How is this my life? You know, and it was like, a, it was the the typical pretty on the outside, but like, the core of it was just rotten, you know? Yeah. 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 And I think for me though, the thing, the thing that's so important for me to remember is I did know, you know, like I did not want to know. I didn't want to look at it. I didn't want to deal with it. I didn't want my life disrupted. I didn't want my children's lives disrupted. Of course. And, yeah. and with my relationship that I talk about in this book, I loved those boys so much. Um, you know, my former partner and I had been friends since we were 17 years old. We'd been together for seven years. I didn't want to see what was right here, mm-hmm. you know, and and so I, I think I was willfully blind. Um, yeah. but I just was too afraid to make the changes I needed to make for me, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So a big part of any transition like this that many of us have learned is we can't do it alone. We can't do it on our own. And in chapter eight, when you're moving your things out of the house, you talk about a note that James left for you. Mm-hmm. And you say in his note, he encouraged Mary, your cousin, mm-hmm. to keep on loving you. I'm sure his intentions were good. But when Mary saw it, she let out an impressive string of expletives. I wouldn't have thought I could laugh that day, but hearing my elegant cousin swear like a sailor on leave was oddly therapeutic. It was helpful to have people angry on my behalf. I couldn't summon it. Yeah. So tell us about the space of what others do for us that we can't do for ourselves in these chaotic transitional lost times in our lives. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I mean, I, I, had people show up for me during that time in ways that I didn't know I needed, in ways that I didn't even recognize at the time. It's only in the rearview mirror that I'm like, oh, wow. You know, the way that person showed up for me. I mean, in that space, people kept asking me if I was angry at James. I wasn't angry. I think I had two moments of anger in the entire situation. I I write about it when I went back to the house to pack my things up and every photo of me and my kids and my dog was gone. And I had a, like a a spike of anger. And then there was one other moment. And actually it's the only, it's not in the book. It's the only moment of behavior I would take back in the entire thing of mine where I I sent a text. I shouldn't have sent. It was, you know, I sent a mean text, but I couldn't feel that anger. All I could feel was grief. I was so overwhelmed. And so like having like, you were pissed off for me. 
Like, so I could, I could outsource these things that I did not feel capable of feeling. Mary was livid. You were mad. My friend Johnny was mad. Like I had people that were kind of like mad on my behalf, which was oddly helpful because mm -hmm. I knew on some level I should be angry, but I just was in such despair. I literally had people push food in front of me. You know, I need you to eat. I need you to drink water. I need you to go to sleep. The only thing I can come back to is that I was so overwhelmed with grief at the, the totality of the loss. So not just James, but his boys, his whole family, who I was very close with, my neighborhood, my pets, yeah, my sense okay. of place. It, it was like having my whole life ripped out from under me. I felt untethered. And so it was like, I, I just was trying somehow to survive it, even though I didn't want to. Yeah. It was like, I have to get out of bed, which felt like a Herculean effort. I have to get to work and function at a hard job all day and then come home and literally like stare. Well, so many people have been there. It makes me think about my breakup before I met Chris. When you say come home and stare, I would realize that I was standing in a doorway and doing nothing for five minutes, that I was just standing there, my brain racing. And then I would walk to a new location in the house and stare. It was just so awful. Anybody that's been there knows it. And we are going to need a copy of that text that you sent so we can put it on the Fireway podcast site. It was not my finest moment. <laughs> <laughs> I would love it. You know, I'm all about that. Love Give me it. some madness. Um, I was going to say this. Like For me, I'm ADHD. For me, a lot of my um, coping with divorce and what was going on, like in the last, even just like the last five years of my marriage, not even divorce, but it was um, disassociation. Like I just left my body and was like that it doesn't exist. I'm just going to create a new, a new life or a new narrative in my brain. And it, this isn't real. This isn't happening. So that was the way I coped and it wasn't the most healthy, I assure you. Um, but that's what I did. I just was like, I'm going to go out of my body and become something else. Sure. Yeah. I get that. I think our brains are actually pretty miraculous in the way yeah. that we find to compartmentalize things and get through things. And um, I deeply understand that as a trauma mm -hmm. survivor, like I yeah. can leave my body like it, like no yeah. business. Yeah. I think for me, especially that last summer of the relationship where when I look back now, I'm like, you know, it's so obvious now, but at the time, um, my go-to response has always been to fix the outside stuff and mm -hmm. not address what's happening internally. Right. So mm -hmm. like, I'll be busier. The house will be the cleanest. I'll do this. I'll do this. And, you know, in recovery, I'll go to more meetings. I went to a meeting every single day. I'll do this. I'll, you know, all the external things. So still sort of looking for external solutions for something that was ultimately internal. And I would say truly internal, like not even between he and I, mm -hmm. right? Like that wasn't even the work that needed to happen. It was really the work I needed to do internally as to why I was making it okay. As to why, you know, I write in the book that I used to stop at the beach every night on my way home to like prepare myself to walk in the door. Like mm -hmm. that's some mental gymnastics to make that an okay way to live, you know, mm -hmm. but I did it every night and it, and I'm a pretty self-aware person. And, you know, if someone said that to me, I'd be like, so <laughs> you are pulling in to sit by the ocean to work up the courage to walk in your own front door. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
say more yeah. friend, you know, yeah. uh, but, but for me, it was like, Oh, this is just, you know, because when you're in that survival mode of like, I'm just going to keep going. I'm just going to keep going. I'm just going to keep going. You can make anything make sense. Okay. So when you talk about the relationship that it wasn't the internal thing was not about you and him, it was about you and you. Oh, for sure. Okay. Okay. So in the chapter entitled shell, you say, Maybe my inability to find a home was really an inability to be one myself. To me, that was like a holy moly moment. So let's stop thinking about just a home. It's, it's hard to hear the word home and not think about a house and a structure and a family and whatever. But it seems like at some place you crossed into this new space of like, I have to figure out my inability to be a home. Anyway, say more. Yeah. So I think that when I, when I started reflecting on like, well, when did I feel at home and when did I feel, you know, loved and when did I feel connected and all that? I realized that to some degree, I had always felt homesick when I was married, when I had my children with me, when I was, you know, in my beautiful home, I always had that feeling. And so then ultimately it has nothing to do with anything external, because if you have all of those pieces in place and you still feel homesick, your lack of a home is completely an inside job. And I think, I don't think it's that hard to connect the dots as to why I have that relationship or lack of a relationship with home. You know, I think when you, as a child, are taught that even your body isn't a safe home to live in, right? That your, mm -hmm. your body isn't a safe space, then really no places. So I definitely think that that's where the roots of it are. And then I think I grew up in a home where, listen, my mom did 100% the best that she could. And there were a lot of challenges in play, but my home was not a place where I necessarily exhaled or felt safe. There was a lot of scarcity. You know, we were poor. There were a lot of things about my home that didn't look like my perception of what everyone else's home was. And, and you know, now I'm old enough to know everyone's home was probably messed up in some way. But I didn't have that sense of like, walk through the door at the end of the day and like, ah, I'm home. That's just not ever really been a part of my story until now. I can say I have that now. But I don't think that that's because of this space that I'm in right now. I think it's because of this space that I'm in right now, right? And I think that if this ended tomorrow and I had to leave, my home would come with me. And I think yeah. that coming home to myself and realizing that any sense of safety or security I ever have is going to be internal. Any sense of connection and love has to start here first. And, you know, you wrote about it so beautifully in your book, and I quote it all the time, but all of that is portable, right? So mm -hmm. I used to think that when I left a home behind, all that stuff stayed in the home and I left empty handed and I don't believe that anymore. Now I think, you know, I would be so sad if this relationship ended. I love him and I'm very happy and I know he loves me, but if it ended and I left, home would come with me. Mm -hmm. You know, so I might lose the relationship, but I wouldn't lose my home. Yeah. So we're going to talk about Shane for a second, if that's okay. But before we do, I just want to read this other uh, portion from the book that speaks to exactly what you were talking about. It says, and just like that, I'm home, not because I found my home or I've made a new home. I'm home, me, the one thing that can't be taken from me unless I do it myself. I am 
my non-negotiable. Everyone and everything else is a variable. I am the constant. If I live in love and insist on peace, if I accept myself and stay present for my life, I am home. I am already home. Yeah. That sounds like a lot of hard work. It was a lot of hard work. It was a lot of hard work. And I think that it's, you know, I think the, I was thinking about this the other day because <clears throat> I, I was not in therapy in the past couple of years, but that doesn't mean that the therapy I was in low those many years ago didn't play into this. Like there were things that my therapist brought up a decade ago that made no sense to me and that I couldn't connect those dots and they sort of like pop up like whack-a-mole where I'm like, oh, you again, you know? And I think there was so much internal work. I'm, I mean, you and I are the same way. The way I come to understand what I think about things is by writing about them, right? So the writing process was a huge piece for me. Um, talking to my friends was a huge piece for me. Music was a huge piece for me. I consumed music like it was my job during this time. I listened to so many different types of music that I would never normally listen to that sort of like felt like it unlocked things in me. There was a, it was not a linear path to healing, but um, I think that we all have to find our own way with it. And I don't think it looks like one thing, you know, I mean, I'm, I am, as we speak, looking for a new therapist, because it's funny, and you and I have talked about this, where I'm like, huh, <laughs> this thing that I always attributed to a former partner seems to be <laughs> here again. And he's not. <laughs> Who is here is this girl. So this might be my thing. And it's like, oh, okay, well, now I... I'm the constant, right? I'm the constant in all these relationships. So this is my thing that I have to work through. Yeah. And I think that's that beautiful work is that it, the, the thing that's so beautiful about work is that it builds on previous work, right? So like you do work and then you live and you learn and you have new heartbreaks and new things happen and then you need more work. And I think I, I think I used to think there was a finish line for that. And then for a while, I was really pissed off when I realized there was no finish line for that. And now I'm kind of grateful. Well, and the good part is that we know there's, there's no silver bullet to this. You haven't learned the lessons about home, and now you will never feel homeless again, right? Check. Work right. Done. Did it. Thank yeah. God. But the good thing that you have learned is that when I'm not feeling at home, I, if it's to be, it's up to me, you know, I am the only one who can fix that and who is responsible to fix that. And while that can be frustrating because it doesn't give us the ability to point our fingers at anybody else, if I'm not the problem, then there is no solution. Right. So at least I know that there's a solution that I can get to when I'm feeling that way. And I've built up, like you said, it builds upon it. I've built up some tools that I can go to and see if I can find them. And if they're not in that box, which happens, right. then I have to develop new tools. Right. Me, sure. I have to. And I think the other thing is, and this is where I feel grateful to have been in recovery and have done that specific work, is we're always taught to look for our part in things. And I think that one thing that was different when this relationship ended is that I was in recovery. Previously, when things happened, it never occurred to me to look for my part. It just didn't occur because the external stuff was so clearly <laughs> being done to me, right? And this time it was like, okay, so this stuff might be going yeah. on, but I'm a participant, right? Yeah. So, so what's my part? And the good thing about my part is it's the only thing I can do anything about. 
I can't do other people's work for them, Mm -hmm. right? I can only do my work. And so ultimately, whether a relationship works or doesn't work, um, I can only do my work in it. That was a big shift for me is having done that specific work in recovery and then pulling that work forward into this. While this wasn't about my alcoholism, healing is healing is healing in a lot of ways. And so being able to go, okay, so what's my piece in this? And, and my pieces in this were interesting to learn about. Like I learned about myself that I always assumed it was my responsibility to make a relationship work, no matter what. And so yeah. if that meant like shelving what I needed or wanted, if it meant staying quiet or small, if it meant putting up with things that I didn't want to put up with or doing things I didn't want to do, that was in my job description that I'd written for myself. And I don't believe that anymore. I love Shane and want this relationship to work. But if it doesn't, I will leave. Because at the end of the day, I am a constant and everyone else is a variable. In chapter 17, you talk about how you're working hard not to become small in your new relationship. I think to honor yourself, just what you just talked about, to not disappear like you had in other relationships. This is a couple of paragraphs I want to read about that. The following Friday, I went straight to Shane's from work. I'd worn a red dress that day, and when I went home at the end of the weekend, I accidentally left it behind. Shane had hung it neatly in the newly emptied closet, which he had emptied these closets to make sure that you had space. The whole weekend, I stayed there, and on Sunday, as I was getting ready to leave, he noted that I'd not even opened the closet to look inside. I felt awful. It meant something to him to have done that, and I'd avoided it all weekend. Before I left, I grabbed my hiking boots, which had moved in with him already, and placed them neatly on the floor in the middle of the closet. On the drive home, with Scout sitting next to me, I kept thinking about how he was always creating room for me. I'd been so consumed with not making myself small enough to get lost in someone else's life again, I'd missed the fact that he kept making more and more space for me in his. (laughs) Well, and it's so funny. And I don't know if you remember this story. It hadn't occurred to me for a long time that he would shift for me if I needed him to shift for me. Like it just hadn't occurred to me. So there was one time where I went there on a Friday after work and I got there and he was sitting out on his back deck and, you know, I'd like raced home and packed my bag and got the dog and drove up to where he lived and got there and was kind of like, you know, Mm -hmm. and he was on his phone, hyper-focused doing something. And I was sitting there like, why, why, why am I here? (laughs) Help me understand. Why am I here? Right. And so I sat there for a while and I got pissed and went inside and was like, and so he eventually came in and realized like the rage rating off me. And I was like, well, I'm just never coming on a Friday again. I can't expect you to change. This is what you do. This is, it was what he did like that time, but this is what you do. And I'm just never going to come on a Friday again. And he was like, (laughs) or you could ask me to put my phone down, pay attention yeah. to you. But like yeah. that hadn't, I went to like DEFCON 10 where it's like, well, I guess Fridays are off the table. I can't come on well, Friday. And that's what you have said to me is be careful. You're talking to the person in front of you and not the person behind you. Right. But like, I think for me, f- yes, first of all, I was definitely doing that. But also like 
it hadn't occurred to me that I could just say, hey, I just drove 45 minutes in traffic after a long week to get here. And it would be like, nice if you paid attention. Like that hadn't occurred to me. I was like, well, I guess Fridays are just dead to us. We can't do Fridays anymore. It's like ridiculous thinking. I think I was so determined not to be in that space again, that I was like, I defended myself like a junkyard dog where I was like, nope, we're not doing this. Absolutely not. I'm not going to do this. And Shane was just like, what are we not doing? What's happening? Yeah. Yeah. Anything that starts with, I guess, I always am like, uh-oh, put the shields up or fighting. If, if, if I hear somebody say, well, I guess, it's like, uh-oh, here we go. <laughs> Prepare yourself. Prepare yourself for battle. Yeah, I was not my most rational self. We've all done it. Right. But And he was so like, so you can tell me that that doesn't work for you. And then <laughs> just do something different. And I was like, well, that's weird. Right. <laughs> I would much rather just never come on a Friday again. Yeah. yeah, it all makes sense. Yeah. My brain has gone like different directions when, when you talk. So much of what you said resonates. But for me, what I learned is it's codependency. Like I want to, for a long time, probably up until my late 30s, I felt my worth was in fixing things for people or making them no big deal. Like, let me fix that for you. Let me just make it. Let me just downplay it. I'll take it all for you. And then I get really mad bitter at that person for fixing their issue. And like what you said um, about your, you, something that really brought anger to you was when you walked into the house to get the rest of your things. And he had taken down the pictures of you and your kids and all the things you brought. I don't want to quote you wrong, but you said something like he was okay for, with what I brought to his life. He just didn't want me. Yeah. And I, not just in intimate relationships, but just in general, it's like, I used to think everybody's okay with me doing things for them. But when it comes to just like me being in their life, they just run right over me. So I've, that felt so like the resonating in my heart. It was like, I I feel seen. That's the word. I feel seen. Yeah. And it feels like an erasure. I mean, it feels like, oh, okay, well, you can just, just take a Sharpie and just... Yeah. And so like, um, I've learned what the word I've learned was detachment. And it sounds so negative, like detaching and letting people just feel their, their stuff yeah. going, Oh, you know, that must be really hard. Instead of going, Oh, I'll do it for you. Let me, uh, let, you know, that is, has been the hardest thing for me, but also the most liberating and freeing thing that you, that loving people is not fixing it, but like just letting it be and, and letting them feel that. Sure. And I think also, you know, like I said before, we can't do anyone's work. I have a rich and storied history of inserting (laughs) myself into other people's work and trying to do it for them. Mm -hmm. But when you do that, all you do is either protect them from consequences Mm -hmm. of something or stunt their own growth. Right. So I have historically done that in all of my relationships. I remember Mm -hmm. reading Codependent No More and being livid because I was like, (laughs) how dare you? And I think that I was so intent on sort of like handing people solutions, handing people healing, handing people, this is what the path could be, you know, not realizing that not only was that not loving, it was really the opposite of loving. Like loving is like, I fully believe in your capacity to do your work and heal yourself. 
I don't need to rescue you from your own bravery. I don't need to rescue you from your own path. I don't need to insert myself into work that is not my work. Not mm-hmm. only is that not loving, it's insulting. And the reason we do that, it is so uncomfortable to watch people struggle. I know what you should do. Here it is. Just do this thing. This is how, you know. And and the reality is that that's so arrogant. That's my thing. That's my healing. And maybe it worked for me. And maybe it's the solution for me. And maybe it's not for you, right? I don't even know what healing looks like for you, right? And so really learning to sit back and like, sit with the discomfort of realizing that struggle is not the antithesis of healing and growth. It is a part of it. Mm-hmm. And if you remove the struggle, you remove the end result. You, you do not get, I don't care. Anyone who tells you time heals all wounds is selling you something. Time does <laughs> not heal all wounds. Zero percent of the time does time heal all wounds. Time and work heal all wounds. And if you rescue someone from the work, you are rescuing them from healing. And that is not love. That is selfish. Yeah. Far away. (laughs) (laughs) That was good. Yeah. That was really, really good. I I have one last thing that kind of reminds me of it. It's like, I have always been trying to make home for everybody else Mm -hmm. so that we don't have to to face our stuff. Like, I don't want to be a bother. That's my thing. I don't want to bother anybody. So let me, let me take care of you. So I don't have to ask for what I need or say, you know, that hurts or all of those things where I doing those things is what's going to make me feel most at home and in my, in myself, I project what I need onto other people and do it for them, but don't do it for myself. Yeah. It's a nifty way to avoid looking at yourself. So good. So good. (laughs) Sometimes in, in our defense, sometimes people make it really easy. Yeah, I mean, I should all over people. You know what you should do? Let me tell you what you should do. Yeah. <laughs> I've written you a five-step plan. <laughs> My life is on fire, but let me tell you what you should do. <laughs> God, I have so many things here that I've written down. I loved this, Laura. When I think back to vacations I've loved, my reaction has always been, I could live here. I guess I've always cared less about an escape from life and more about creating a life I didn't need to escape from. (laughs) I don't know what any of that means. (laughs) It's funny because it's mean. (laughs) You're like, did Laura read my diary before she wrote this? (laughs) Oh my God. There's so much bravery here. I mean, There's a low moment in the book that is so low. I was going to ask you about it, but I don't really want to. I want to wait till people read. To me, one of the bravest things that we can do is when we tell on ourselves. And we get to a point where we can tell on ourselves and not have it feel so shameful because anybody who's been through it understands the beauty of what that and the power of it. You do talk about how you had envisioned getting married on this island Mm -hmm. in this wedding dress that you had. Mm -hmm. There's a part where you say something at the end. I think I've got it written down, actually, where you say, I could see it. And you're meaning the wedding. Mm -hmm. I could see it. I guess I was so sure we'd get there. It didn't occur to me. We never really talked about it. And I swear to God, it's in these kinds of confessions that like stop me dead (laughs) because we've all been there, but not all of us have the courage. Like that's almost an embarrassing thing. Oh, 
Completely. Where yeah. you're like, oh shit. And I, I remember, you know, there's some parts about the wedding dress, but I remember there being a moment in that when I had that realization of like, in seven years, we never talked about getting married. This is in one of the movies where the kid's like in the corner smacking himself in the head. You know what I mean? Where it's like, what? We never, never even talked about it. I think there was one sort of like half-assed discussion about it. And I, I was still drinking at that point. It wasn't, it wasn't even a real conversation. And then we never talked about it again. And that didn't even occur to me that like seven years in, that's weird. Yeah. That's just weird. Yeah. Even if it's to say like, yeah, I don't feel like we need that. It's still a conversation. And how I had this moment of just feeling like humiliated that I had this dress for a wedding that we'd never even talked about. Yeah, that's the stuff that gives people permission. Like, you're fucked up. (laughs) We all are. We all are. But then some of us have the courage to say it. And you're just like, I can't believe she's telling that story. And that's what that felt like to me, where it's, it's, there's humiliation in it, but not really, but it's just strength. Well, and I think that, you know, you and I approach writing the same way where I am always looking to create space for other people to tell their stories, even if their stories don't look anything like mine. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that is what vulnerability does always. It creates space for someone else to share something that feels unspeakable to them. And I think for me, I definitely had that like hot, sick tug of shame when I realized, like saw the dress and all the things. I'm really not ashamed of it at all, you know, but I think if I didn't say it out loud to someone in some way, that is how shame builds on itself. And that is how it metastasizes is by not speaking it into the light. And so when I tell those things, I feel like I take the power away from them, you know, and and let me say that there's a lot of this story that goes untold and will stay untold some Mm -hmm. because it's not mine to share. And some because I think I've learned over time to discern what's for public consumption and what isn't, you know, and so you never are getting the whole story. And I freely acknowledge that this is not the whole story. I'm not even capable of telling the whole story because he has his whole perspective on this and his whole truth with it and his pain and all those things. And that's all valid too. I tried very, very hard to discern what was mine to tell and what was not mine to tell. Oh, it's, it's so gracious. This is not a browbeating in any way. It is your story and it is you digging into who you are and figuring out new things. I want to ask you a question and then I want to end with a little passage that you've written from the book, but what is it that you are hoping for in releasing this book into the world? A couple things. I mean, first of all, like I said, I'm always, I don't know that everyone has the complicated relationship with home that I do. And so it might not be a mirror to what they've gone through. I think for some people it will. I do think there's a lot of women and men, but a lot of women specifically my age who find their lives upended and are standing in the rubble going, what happened? And it feels very much like it's just something that happened to them. And, and I very much felt that way. And I think that I really wanna, wanted to model, like, if you lean into that 
and walk through that and sift, right? Like what is mine? What is mine to own? What is mine to put down and not carry forward? What, you know, what does that look like? You can put together what happened in a way that you can find meaning in and purpose in and healing in so that you come out the other side. You'll be a different shape. I'm a different shape than I was before that happened, right? There Mm -hmm. are things that I had to leave behind. There are things that I had to pick up. But I do think that you can come out even with scars and cracks and all those things more whole than you were to begin with. I feel Mm -hmm. more whole on the other side of having been broken than I felt before. We need role models of people who are willing to talk about what the work looked like for them because sometimes we get the sort of prescription of like, this is what work looks like. Mm -hmm. And I'm here to tell you, it's not one size fits all. I remember talking to you when you were going through your breakup and your healing from that. And there were some things that were similar to mine. There were some things that were really different. And I think that we all need sort of those like role models and healing of like, no, you can take charge of your own healing and you can find your own meaning and you can do those things, but you're going to have to work for it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I just wanted to say that I don't know Laura very, I don't know her at all, actually. We've shared some comments and that's really it. But I do have her cell phone number. We we both are on water journeys. But I, Laura, you are so genuine and easy to relate to. Like I texted you my whole story. You you didn't even ask. I'm like, here's what I did. I got to tell you everything. You're like a flashlight. Like here, I don't know your journey, but here's look at this way. And so that's what I would say. Your book really reminded me of just like a flashlight. Like here, I know it's dark. Here you go. See your way through. That means Mm -hmm. a lot. Yeah. Go get it. Amazon. Yeah. I mean, it's coming out on this episode is airing on Friday, October 7th. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. The book comes out the 11th and we have our virtual book launch, which Matt will be at. You're all invited to that. If you're looking for it, look on Laura's site. On Facebook, Laura Perry Perry Writer, um, on my website. And you can just go on Eventbrite and search by my name. It's free, but you do need to register. Okay. Yeah. Laura, thank you so much for being here. And there are so many books that come out and are just prescriptive. There's not a lot that really walk a person through a process that somebody else has been through the way Homer does. I just didn't expect it to be. I mean, it's just gorgeous. It is a work of art and it is so helpful and I think is going to help a lot of people. But I want to read this one little thing. There's a part in the book where you talk about, and I wanted to end with this on purpose, where you talk about being in a cemetery and the names kind of having worn off. You're talking about the fluidity of water and and sort of the comparison of rock versus water and that people would always say that rock was stronger. Mm -hmm. And then you say this, actually, you say uh, water is stronger. Just ask any insurance agent. (laughs) or insurance adjuster. And then this is what follows. Water flows over rock and smooths out the rough surfaces. The jagged outcroppings of fear are all worn down by its fluid persistence. It may seem like the Grand Canyon contains the Colorado River, but the Colorado River created the Grand Canyon. Water sometimes rages and sometimes works patiently, but it always always wins. And like water, love seeps into the narrowest cracks of the most guarded heart, over, under, between, and through. Love finds a way. 
It will prevail against the forces of hardness and resistance, but it can take a long time. It can take an excruciatingly long time. That's the part that we don't all love, that it takes the time it takes. Yep. But the moment it changes, everything's new. Yeah. And for me and my life, it's taken me five decades to long damn time. But I don't regret any of that. I'm not mad or bitter about any of it. I am. It's true. Anyway, that's so beautiful. The writing in this book is just so thank you for being with us. Pick up Laura's book. It's available on Amazon in just Mm -hmm. a few days Mm -hmm. and is available in paperback, Mm -hmm. e-reader, which you Mm -hmm. can already pre-order, and also an audio version of Laura narrating her own book. And Matt Bay's narrating the foreword. It's so beautiful. Every time I read it, I get choked up. Thank you. Laura, say fire away. Fire away. On a less serious note, that, that thing you just wrote, all I could think of was, now that is a water journey. <laughs> <laughs> That's it for us today on Fire Away. We'll be back with more Seriously Funny Conversations next week. Don't forget to like us on Facebook at facebook.com podcast fire away and on Instagram at fireaway underscore podcast and watch us via video on our YouTube channel and fire this podcast off to a few friends, especially this podcast. Mm-hmm. Share this away. Could, this could help some people. Yeah, this is a good one. And if you're a sparkler, damn it, you owe it to people to help people. So sparkle and shine that shit everywhere. Is that your invisible sparkler? Yeah, I'm spelling my name. <laughs> okay, good. Fire away! Fire away! That gray. Woo. Okay. I thought you were getting your hair done last Thursday. She canceled on me. Oh, mother of God. I don't. I'm about to die. <laughs>